0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Recently, President Donald Trump criticized the New York Times and called for a change in the libel laws. This is not the first time the president has criticized the Times and the press. Uh, Our topic today, what is libel? What do the libel laws say? What would the consequences of changing them be? And should they be changed? Joining us are two of America's leading experts on libel and free speech, and it's such an honor to have them both. Adam Liptak is the remarkably distinguished Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. He writes Sardbar, a column on legal developments, and among his many other achievements, he practiced law for 14 years, including in The Times's legal department, before joining The Times in 2002. And Richard Epstein is the inaugural Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at the NYU School of Law, and among the most distinguished scholars of the Constitution in the country. Adam, Richard, thank you so much for joining
1: pleasure. It's great to be
0: here. Let's jump right in. Adam, the president has called for changing the libel laws. This would require an alteration in the actual malice standard uh, recognized in the 1964 New York Times case. Uh, The actual malice standard means that news organizations have to knowingly publish a falsehood or published it with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. Uh, Where did the actual malice standard come from? Should it be changed? And if it were changed, would the president become a liable defendant as well as a liable plaintiff?
1: So there's a lot in that question. The actual malice standard is a little hard for lay people to grasp at first, partly because it really has nothing to do with malice in the sense of ill will or spite. As you say correctly, Jeff, it requires someone suing for libel uh, who's who's, who's a public official To prove not only that something false was said about them, not only that the false thing caused damage to their reputation, but also that the person saying the thing knew it to be false or entertained serious subjective doubts about the truth or falsity of what they said. So it has to be in essence, a calculated falsehood and whatever else you can say about journalists. uh, We may make mistakes. Uh, We uh, may fall short of our own standards. But it is a terribly rare journalist who is going to publish a knowing falsehood. And moreover, even assuming that were to happen, the libel defendant is in a very tough spot because the only person really who knows whether the falsehood was knowing or not is the person who published it. Very hard to get at it with circumstantial evidence. So the bottom line of the actual malice standard is that it makes it all but impossible for people who are subject to it, public officials um, and public figures, to pursue libel suits And that's what makes President Trump frustrated because he reads things about himself that he doesn't like, true or false, uh, and he'd like to do something about it. But as a public official, uh, he's really boxed out.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Richard, you've written many distinguished articles uh, arguing uh, that the actual malice standard should be changed, uh, including an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune in 1985 and many scholarly articles. Uh, Why do you think that the actual malice standard should be changed and what standard should be adopted instead?
2: Well, I think the difficulty with the actual malice standard is it places too much on what the defendant thought and not enough about the harm to the plaintiff's reputation, which in many of these cases can be quite devastating. This has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It seems to me that the appropriate way to look at this is to figure out what the appropriate balance of equities is. And the earlier view, which was actually announced when he was on the Sixth Circuit by uh, Chief Justice Robert Taft, uh, who later became William Howard Taft, who later became president, was, look, um, if you broadcast something and you just simply make a simple opinion of the sort which says I think that X is a thief and it turns out he's not a thief that turns out to be a false statement and you can sue for it but if what you do is you lay out all of the evidence upon um, which other people can then decide whether your conclusion that X is a thief is true or false that's perfectly okay so the uh, subtle line between fact and opinion took a place in that case and I think that that unbalances a better situation because as Adam said um, Um, It is basically the case after a lot of contentious litigation from, say, 1964 through around 1969. Given the defenses that the newspapers have, and nobody brings a libel case anymore. It has to reproduce the libel and everything else. So what should be done? Uh, One solution, which I like a lot, is you don't worry about damages but you worry about corrections. And you say, uh, if it turns out that somebody can show that the statement is false, you don't have to prove anything about Alice, actual malice or harm. or the newspaper has to publish a retraction at equal level and distinction of the original paper so the record could be corrected. And newspapers have resisted that ironically on the grounds that it would hurt their reputation, which only makes the point about how important reputation turns out to be. And indeed, in the New York Times case of 1964, it turned out you didn't have to go to the actual malice standard to protect the defendant. Uh, the harm was said to be oven concerning the plaintiff, a standard test. Sullivan was not even identified by name. He became a local folk hero, and he was able to sue for $500,000 in damages at the time, which would be about $2.5 million today, for becoming a local hero. There were six other people waiting in the wings, and Alabama could have broken the New York Times. Uh, so the correct answer in that particular case is, look, well, very hard at the particular damages and to look very hard at the oven concerning requirement, and that will give you a much better mix uh, than the current actual malice rule, which was a radical departure from all pre-existing cases on the subject, and to my mind, a mistake.
0: Thank you so much for that. And thank you for telling us that it was a, a Taft decision on the Sixth Circuit that uh, <laughs> preceded these libel rules as a great Taft defender. my
2: friend. Hallam against somebody or other.
0: Uh, Hallam other. Well, dear We the People listeners, check out the Hallam decision. I'll read it too and write to me and tell me what you think of it. And Adam, assuming you don't have Hallam memorized, what do you think of Richard's uh, proposal to return libel law to the standard that it existed before New York Times? And what would the consequences of his proposal be?
1: So, so I think Richard is in one sense right in one sense wrong about the sullivan case it's true that the sullivan case could have been uh, disposed of on straightforward common law libel grounds of and concerning but it's also true that it was at the vanguard of a number of cases whose goal was during the civil rights movement to drive the northern press out of the south and to deprive the civil rights movement of the attention that it needed like oxygen and that caused uh, William Brennan and his colleagues to come up with a larger rule, one that would protect the press robustly in an era of national crisis. Now, you can ask the question did they make too broad a rule that would decades later uh, have issues with it? But I think that the core of the First Amendment really is concerned with protecting political speech and with protecting criticism of the government. Uh, uh, and public officials in their official conduct, and that the actual malice uh, rule, perhaps it's been applied to too many kinds of people, but high government officials should be subject to robust uh, critique, investigation, and criticism, and there should be plenty of bleep breathing room for the press uh, to do its work. I, I'm not a fan of compelled corrections. The court, I mean, compelled speech is an area where lots of people are getting protection today, the Tornillo case uh, held. Uh, the Supreme Court said that we couldn't. There, there's no right of reply under American First Amendment law. So the notion that courts should be telling the press what they must print is not attractive to me.
0: Richard, let me just say that I've I've Googled it and found it exactly as you said. Post uh, Publishing versus Hallam, 1893. Fascinating that it was William Howard Taft who came up with a narrower rule. Yeah. What were the consequences of adopting a narrower? rule B. Would it be easier for Stormy Daniels, for example, to sue President Trump. uh, uh, Under the current standard, a judge seems likely to dismiss her. Well,
2: I mean, the answer is it's going to be on balance easier for all plaintiffs to sue all defendants. And so your initial teaser at the beginning that uh, the president may rue the day when it turns out that the libel standards are turned on him and opposed to anybody else. But just to give you an illustration, the very florid New York Times Trump engaged in suspect tax scheme as he reaps riches from his father, given the amount of documentation that's found in that report, it would be bulletproof under the standard that I put forward. Uh, There's also another interest, and I think this is very important as well. Yes, we certainly should be able to have robust criticism of the president, and certainly with respect to facts that are commonly in evidence, anybody can more or less say um, what he wants. But at the time when the decision came down, there were a lot of people who said, you know, you don't give any kind of respectable protection under the defamation laws. People are going to be much less willing to become public figures because they're going to be stripped of that particular situation. And the rule, of course, applies in every conceivable kind of case that one deals with. And during the 1980s, it was interesting to see the way the cases broke. What the plaintiffs did was go into an exquisite detail what the full statement was by the press, how it managed to force them out of a CEO position, of course, some serious electoral office created difficulties in their marriage or whatever. And all that stuff was true and the defense of the newspapers was always on the other side, namely uh, that we have this grand mission and so therefore this collateral damage has to be tolerated. And as far as the question of whether or not this is compelled speech one way or another, uh, this was an option for the plaintiffs. If the defendants want to fight this thing all the way through on this and not correct and have to pay damages, well then I think it would be under the standard I said uh, perfectly appropriate. Interestingly enough, one of the things that newspapers now do quite Assiduously is adopt voluntarily the particular situation that I've said. So if you have, as the New York Times has, a correction page, somebody phones something in, and you research it and find it's correct, you publish a retraction in that place, it's fairly high visibility, not perfect, uh, but it will do the trick. So we've moved into that particular kind of uh, situation anyhow. Uh, but I do believe, in effect, that you know, asking somebody to correct a grievous mistake is not the form of censorship. It's not trying to tell tell them what to think in other cases, it's an effort, it's a remedy to create a remedy for a wrong. And you can have wrongs in speeches, you can everywhere else, and some kind of rectification which is applicable in other cases should be applied here. I don't think the notion of freedom of speech tells you what to do when speech is false and defamatory. It only tells you that if it's neither false nor defamatory, you can say it to your heart's content.
0: Adam, you were uh, a libel lawyer for The New York Times before you assumed your present distinguished position. Tell us about the kind of care that The Times takes before publishing an article and the remedies uh, that it takes after uh, it issues corrections.
1: So so Richard is quite right uh, that the world he's describing already exists. The question is whether it's voluntary and a consequence of following professional journalistic norms or whether it's compelled by courts. Uh, all serious news organizations promptly correct errors of fact. Uh, we do, and that means that the Times really very seldom gets sued. We have not lost or settled a libel case for money in the United States since the Sullivan case in 1964, which tells you two things. One, just how much protection it's given us, but also that we take very, very seriously our obligation. Uh, to get the facts right. When when I used to give seminars to journalists, I would describe the situation as a kind of donut. And the inner part of the donut, which is what we aim for, is very serious, fact-based journalism. And when we have an occasional misstep to correct it promptly and transparently and openly. And the outer part of the donut Is the amount of protection the law gives us, the breathing room the law gives us, so that the government, which is the courts, of course, is not compelling us to say things, but is letting us use our own professional judgment about what the right
2: outcomes are? No other profession gets that degree of deference in terms of what it does, whether you're accountants or product manufacturers and so forth. I agree that these are enormously important prophylactics, but I don't think that freedom of speech means anything more with respect to speech than it does with freedom of action. Uh, There are limitations based on force and fraud, and I I think that to some extent those ought to be protected. Fortunately, the prophylactic behaviors, I think, work relatively effectively. It's also the case that when you're going after public figures like the president, his reputation is so established, positive and negative, that even a very powerful and thorough survey like the one that the New York Times did is not going to change anybody's opinion about the president. Lots of people knew his father was rich. Lots of people knew that he has taken edges somewhere or another. Lots of people knew that he became a, a kind of a licensing genius of one sort or another. Uh, so I think, in effect, with presidential candidates, uh, the vast amount of knowledge out there means it's very hard to move anybody one way or another. But with many of these business executives whose lives have been shattered by this kind of information, they don't have that background of public estimation of them, which insulates them from unexpected shocks.
0: Adam, has the you, your response would be great. And I also wonder whether the rise of the net and social media has changed things. And since anyone with uh, connectivity is a journalist, whether there's need for more protections. Yes, so
1: a number of points. I think business executives are a good example of someone who might need more protection. And in fact, when I used to practice, I was very nervous about business executives because it was not at all clear that courts would hold them to be public figures entitled to the actual malice standard. Uh, Many courts consider business executives to be subject to a lesser standard of negligence, meaning uh, that mere carelessness could subject you to liability. So I think Richard is, is right to be concerned about it, but I think the law is alert to that question also. As to President Trump's reputation, let's remember that Actual malice is not the only element of libel. You have to show harm to reputation. and there are serious questions about whether, in a number of areas, it's uh, President Trump's reputation is capable of of being harmed. And then I think you had a third question, Jeff, but I've lost it.
0: about social media and the fact that bloggers oh, don't do fact checking.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, there was more libel litigation going on in an era where we really controlled the flow of information to the public, where uh, a handful of networks and big national newspapers and news magazines really were the way people found out what was going on. And therefore there was more reason to allow people to uh, to sue us because they could, what could they do? They could write a letter to the editor, we'd publish it or not. These days, everyone has a platform to respond. Uh, and for better or worse, our reputation has been uh, assaulted daily. And it may be that people are less apt to trust what we say, even when we publish a 13,000 word investigation that was the result of the examination of 100,000 documents over 18 months. Uh, We live in an era now where uh, truth itself is contested.
0: Richard, your thoughts just on the effects of social media in a post-truth world and whether that makes uh, strict libel laws more or less necessary would be great.
2: Well, what happens is when you're dealing with social media, it becomes almost impossible to use a libel law because any document which is stated by one person is transmitted by another, echoed by three other people. So the number of times that you could be called a liar in any given day could be in the thousands of people. So I think what's really happened is that there's no way that you could get the individual persons for libel. Uh, the hard question that you have to ask, on which I'm highly doubtful, is whether or not you wish to have some sort of institutional responsibility for the people. Who who post the information or allow it to be posted on their sites, whether it's Twitter or Facebook and so forth. The initial inclination that I have in those cases is that this turns out to be a terrible mistake because there are too many people um, who post on these things. And the last thing we want the social media to do is to censor everybody that's there. Uh, the compromise position, which has been rejected, is if somebody presents credible grounds that a given statement is out and out false and defamatory or worse, you take it off for a while, examine and then put it Back on if you think it's credible, um, and you keep it off if not. My own view about that is I get more skeptical of that solution today because I think the sheer volume of stuff that we have is overwhelming. Uh, one of the things that was said in New York Times is that counter speech is a perfectly appropriate remedy. Uh, this was in response to the old aphorism which says the reason we have a law of defamation is that it's hard for truth to catch up with a lie. I think in effect the gap is closing a little bit, and I think. If you actually try to go to where we are today with mass media, it's going to be essentially a free-fire zone, no matter how reckless the statements turn out to be, no matter how scurrilous the various kinds of accounts. I just don't see it. And one reason I don't see it is anybody who's a public figure who wants to bring a libel suit has to be mad. Uh, Because if you try to bring this suit, anybody who reports on the suit gets the so-called absolute record libel privilege, so long as it's an accurate summary. So you have to essentially announce that if you're going to to file a complaint alleging that terrible things have been said about you, they're now going to be said another 100,000 times in the next 24 and 48 hours. There has been no serious libel litigation in the United States against any kind Kabat- who's a remotely public-like figure since 1990.
0: Fascinating. Adam, what is the situation in Europe, where in, the Britain, in Britain the libel laws are tighter and there's no exemption from liability for social media companies. They don't have the equivalent of Section 242 of our Communications Decency Act. And what does that tell us about what we should do here? Uh,
1: So it's an entirely different culture. In uh, Britain, if something bad is said about you, it's expected you'll bring suit. Uh, Those things are often quickly settled in part because the other side has to pay your legal fees if, if, if you prevail. The protections for the press are much lower, but so are damages. So you get to be a little bit closer to what Richard was talking about, of having the legal system sort of tentatively assess the truth of something uh, and not relying on concepts like actual malice and negligence and good faith, but really trying to drill down and figuring out whether the statement was true or not. And if it could be proven uh, false, uh, you will pay, by American standards, relatively modest damages maybe some fairly substantial legal fees. As for this question of the Communications Decency Act, the federal statute that gives internet platforms immunity from being sued for the things that they post, it really leaves you in a very odd situation. Consider this. If the New York Times publishes a letter to the editor in our print paper, it is as though we had said it. The libel concept is tail bearers are as bad as tail makers and we can be sued for it. If that very same statement is posted as a comment on our website, we are wholly immune. And the idea behind the Communications Decency Act, decades old now, was that the nascent Internet needed to be protected, whereas the establishment press, uh, you know, could be sued to a fairly well because we were so powerful. Well, you know, that has flipped on its head, but we still have this legal regime in the U.S. uh, that's a little hard to justify.
0: Fascinating. Richard, should we move to the British system and should Section 242 be repealed?
2: Um, look I think what Adam says is a sign of the anomalies let me say what I think the correct answer on that case is before I go to 242 Um, what happens is I think if you are a publisher as opposed to a common carrier or a quasi common carrier you should be subject to the same rules whether you publish it on the internet or whether you publish it in your newspaper and I think the newspaper rules are probably the correct rule because when you do these things you edit those letters you review those letters you got a lot of control Um, when you're talking about the Random Facebook people who just simply create a platform but don't supervise content—I think probably the Communications Decency Act is the appropriate kind of response uh, because I think it's just too much of a burden to go after them. I mean, uh, put it in the other perspective: these guys become punching bags in court because I think they make the terrible business judgment mistake of announcing their own politics when they're running these networks. But they get constantly hammered for pro-liberal biases, anti-conservative biases, and so forth. I think it would be extraordinarily dangerous, for the reasons that Adam said, um, to allow some independent party to sort of make a judgment as to whether the skew is one way or the other. Uh, But it turns out that there are a lot of people who say the quasi-monopoly status of these organizations invites them to heavier scrutiny, even if they're not going to be a publisher. This will turn out to be, in the next five or ten years, I think, one of the major sources of contestation, because not only do we have novel technologies, but there's also also been a quasi revolution in the not the libel laws but in the antitrust laws where more and more people are starting to say that bigness is itself a form of badness regardless of how you get it. And so I expect to see enormous contestation on these particular issues. For the time being I think that Adams should be responsible for the New York Times both online and in the paper when it's on their own website, but I don't think anybody who just simply runs an abstract posting thing should be there. So I would, with very much unease, keep that there and do what I think Adam says the newspapers do, which is to constantly put social pressure on Twitter and um, Facebook and so forth and Google uh, to constantly watch their schemes and to do so relatively free of legal liability. I just don't think it's going to work. The tool is too slow and the consequences are too grave and the error rate is too high. Sometimes what you have to say is, regrettable as it may sound, that counter speech is the better remedy.
0: Adam, are you confident that counter-speech is an adequate remedy in an age of uh, widespread fake news? And what kind of social pressure should be placed on the companies? Should they be making judgments about fact and fiction, or are there other screening mechanisms they should put into place?
1: Well, Jeff, you've written some very smart stuff in this area where we're really running into a situation where technology has outpaced the law. And these giant uh, companies, Google and Facebook and Twitter, have— taken over the editing function that used to be, uh, done by journalists. And if they were truly platforms and simply bulletin boards, uh, on which people could put whatever they want, that would be one thing. But more and more, we're insisting as a matter of shaming them, that they take down the hate speech. Uh, they take down the, uh, the, the political trolling. They take, they take down the, the, the Russian, uh, advertising. And once they're in that role, you wonder if that function should be entirely privatized and whether they should be entirely trusted, or whether there's a role for government. I don't have a settled view on that, uh, but I agree with the sense I'm hearing from Richard that this is a fast-evolving situation.
0: Richard, if there's not a role for government, some specific suggestions you have for the companies, for principles they should adopt in trying to distinguish between truth and falsehood.
2: Me? Yeah. Yeah. My own view about this is I I think that you cannot do two roles at the same time. You cannot, as for example Facebook is and Google to some extent is, try to be very strong in your political statements about progressive values of one kind or another and then expect that people will believe that you're impartial when you decide the way in which you run your website. And and so when Google gets into this huge scrape and fires a particular employee who gives a fairly learned statistical analysis of why there's fewer women programmers than there are men and gets fired for his pains, uh, the people on the conservative, side of the line. That's just a red flag in front of them. And The rule that you make in every business is you have one or two roles that you could play. You could be either an advocate or you can be a platform or an umpire. You can't do both. So my advice to all of these companies is what they do is they quiet themselves down. They don't write anything collateral about how you're supposed to lean in or do anything else of that sort, run their businesses. And then, as I wish the New York Times would do, Adam, what you also have to do is to put in positions of power people whose political orientation is different from that of the dominant culture, so that the two of them could work these things out internally. And so one of the reasons why many people are so suspect about the New York Times or the New Yorker, um, perhaps, and less so, I think, of the Wall Street Journal, um, is that You know, there are no Republicans in positions of power in the New York Times organization and if that's going to be the case it's just easy to draw the kinds of inference. There'll be no libel suits but there'll be real reputational damages um, that can come from this and I think virtually every one of these organizations has to aim for a kind of a balance on this particular situation. God forbid I should ever tell them whom they should hire or how they should do it. As you know I don't believe the anti-discrimination law should apply to competitive employment markets, only monopolistic services. So I'm not trying to tell them how to do it uh, but I I am saying that the reputational consequences to the newspaper, of every newspaper, being perceived, being perceived as being hopelessly one-sided, same thing with the Facebook and Google and so forth, Twitter, less so perhaps, is, I think, a very important thing that they have to be aware of.
0: That's a fascinating suggestion. Adams, uh, James Bennett at the Times uh, opinion pages has been trying to reach out to conservatives, but should is Richard right that uh, the editors should be uh, politically balanced for internal legitimacy as well?
1: Um, So I think we've moved away from a legal discussion to one about professional norms. Uh, We hold our we we hold ourselves out to be and try to be uh, impartial and neutral. And I don't know that it should matter what someone's private politics are if they're following journalistic norms correctly, just as, say, a lawyer may have political beliefs. but. The client wants them to say something else. Here, it's rather easier. Here, you're just trying to give a balanced representation of the truth.
2: So, well, let I, me say I I disagree with that. Explain. Um, look, I my latest column is about gender equity. There was a New York Times series on this. And what they do is they cite studies by the McKinnon Global Institute or McKin- McKinsey, whatever it is, which I think are terrible studies. And they're it as though they're gospel. And so what happens is all of this stuff makes it onto the page. And there is nobody inside the organization who says, hey, do we really want to print this story? Do we really want to run these conventions in that particular form? And so I just don't think you can have that kind of her. Medic feel with respect to the way in which it goes and the headlines I think are oftentimes times very troublesome and so I actually think that for their own sake every major organization should have a kind of internal intellectual diversity so that before things go out there's somebody on the other side who says do you really want to take that kind of picture and I think that's true of conservative as well as liberal papers um, it certainly I think is true with respect to universities and so forth I do think that the level of left-wing dominance inside these establishment institutions, for the most part, is extraordinarily powerful, and I think that some degree of self-correction is most welcome, uh, but at this point, not forthcoming.
0: Adam, if I could uh, press the point, and this is obviously not illegal, but uh, uh, ethical. We're we're in the realm
1: of press criticism, but uh, I'm happy to talk (laughs) about
0: it. It is, and it's an important discussion because, dear We the People listeners, we are going to be talking about the legitimacy of our institutions, of the Senate, of the Supreme Court, and of the press over the coming months and years, and and The New York Times is a pillar of that legitimacy. Uh, Emily Bazelon, our my my colleague, I m- much admire her work, but she's made clear, uh, you know, in, in in the in the magazine, her substantive views of Judge Kavanaugh. But then she wrote a news article about his drinking habits. So conservatives said that that's biased. Is that a legitimate concern? And how could the Times address it?
1: Well, so the Times acknowledged that it made a mistake in asking Emily to play a role in that Kavanaugh story. As I understand that, it, it was simply that there was a police report that needed fetching in New Haven, where Emily lives. And she did and got a byline and probably she should have been kept out of it. But I think that's a trivial point. I think Richard's general point is an important one. And But to move it back a little bit toward the law, not accepting uh, for a second uh, his basic premise uh, as a factual matter, but let's assume it's true. Let's assume there are advocacy journalists in the world who have opinions And nonetheless, as Richard was earlier saying in the Taft decision, nonetheless, lay out the facts and lay out their conclusions. I don't know that that's such a bad thing. I think that's how much of the European press functions. I think that that way of doing things is fine. I think that's how the press functioned in the founding era. So this notion that lately, and this is a late 20th century development, that there are news organizations that hold themselves out as straight and fair and unbalanced is, to my mind, a great thing. I think we are part of that. But. The legal protection shouldn't rise or
2: fall on whether you have a point of view or not. I didn't say it should. I agree with that. But I'm saying, in effect, I think there are reputational hints. The New York Times has been a progressive newspaper, I would say, since about 1960. But there's been a noticeable shift in the way in which it's headlines and the way in which it operates since that time. Many headlines that I see on the paper, which seem to me to be criticisms are treated as news stories. I think that line has started to blur. And I think that that thing is worried. And, you know, I'm an academic. I don't have an institution behind. Me, I certainly have a brand, and I'm proud of it. I worked for the Hoover Institution when I published these papers, and you know that's basically a small C conservative organization. I have nothing. Against this, I'm saying what is different about this, and it's more important for Facebook than it is for the New York Times. Facebook, if it wants to be a platform, it cannot have a view. The New York Times, if it wants to be a newspaper, can have a view. I don't dispute that at all, uh, but I do think, in effect, that if you push too hard, uh, the danger is to your own reputation um, because you become a fair target for people on the other side. And socially, if it becomes really intense on both sides of this stuff, what happens is you the position that we now have in American public life, there's nobody in the middle. Instead of having a bell-shaped curve where the peak is around the center, we have a U-shaped curve in which there are very few moderate Democrats, very few moderate Republicans, and you get a press pushing very hard on both directions. And I think civil coalition takes a real beating when it turns out that each side does not recognize from time to time that it may, in a particular case, have made an error. So this is not a legal argument, it's a sociological argument, which is very very difficult to justify and so forth, but I think if you sort of look at the way in which the world worked on, say, Supreme Court nominations 50 or 60 years ago, it was a very different world than we have today, and the polarization is going to be something that's extremely difficult uh, to overcome, um, particularly in this last iteration. It's, I think, a lasting
0: scar. The polarization will indeed be difficult to overcome. Thank you both for engaging in this freewheeling discussion. But Adam, in this time when the polarization is so hard hard to overcome and the distinction between fact and opinion is so embattled, what can the New York Times do to uh, restore the faith of readers of different perspectives?
1: I don't know that we can do anything more than keeping our heads down, doing our jobs, staffing up. Uh, We have doubled the size of the Washington Bureau. We have enormous investigative resources. We still have bureaus all around the world. We're a powerful uh, news gathering organization. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that we disappoint Richard from time to time. But once in a while, if I'm like on an airplane, say, and I've got more time than I usually do with the paper and I read it front to back, I emerge from that experience very, very proud and thinking that this is a very valuable American institution uh, at the top of its game.
0: Richard, since we're talking about the legitimacy of institutions, I can't resist asking you how you would uh, approach the challenge to the legitimacy of the court. What can the court do? to restore faith my well, well, bipartisan legitimacy? Um,
2: on the court, I don't think the problem is acute. I think it's how you get there. The nomination process is clearly broken. I will put aside all my partisan preferences on this thing. I think the first thing that one does is there's no such thing as confidential information that is shared, not shared, between the two parties. The second thing I think is I'm very much opposed in general to having the nominee appear before the panel and to be grilled in the way in which it happens. The record's out there. Uh, generally speaking, what you're always trying to do is to get people to make concessions and predictions and so forth, and everybody has to pay rope-a-dope, and they start to be appropriate. A third thing I think, which is very important, I would change uh, the entire constitutional provision. I do not think Supreme Court service should be for life. I think it should be for 18-year terms uh, so as to be able to get a higher rate of rotation. Uh, you don't worry about three people retiring in three years, and the next guy setting the agenda for the next 40 years and so forth. Um, That was a position I took many, many years ago, um, and I I think it is more today one way or another. Uh, The other part which I think I can change is when you have a Supreme Court which has so much power over administrative law and such an enormous scope of federal jurisdiction, there's a lot of, shall we say, discretionary power there, and whenever there's uncertainty, it will attract all sorts of resources as people try to move it one way or another. So I am still a 1937 classical liberal on this issue. I'm not defending segregation or anything ridiculous like that, but I think a smaller federal government and stronger property rights will make the Supreme Court a better place.
0: Fascinating. Adam, same very important question to you. What can the court do to restore its legitimacy or what can citizens do to restore it? And if you don't feel confident uh, giving your own answer, you perhaps you could describe some of the best arguments that you've been reporting on.
1: Well, I, 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 I used to be a fan of confirmation hearings. I used to think that seeing a John Roberts on his feet and Elena Kagan on her feet actually gave you some insight into their habits of mind and what kind of justices they were going to be. But I agree that this recent experience um, did the nominee and the court no good maybe there was value in it but at some cost to the court's legitimacy i completely agree with richard uh and and also with his suggestion that it would take a constitutional amendment that we should join every other developed democracy in the world whose high court whose constitutional court has either a fixed retirement age or term limits because this notion of people coming on at the age of 45 and serving until they're 90 and being the dead hand of history and timing their retirement strategically so that they can step down under a president whose ideological views they approve of is very bad for
0: the court. Um, This is wonderful agreement. Richard, another uh, suggestion uh, is federalism. And uh, conservatives and liberals are arguing for denationalizing constitutional issues and returning them to the state level. Do you want to take another beat on that?
2: Well, as you know, that's been my position since 1986. Um, I think the Commerce Clause should not apply to internal manufacture, internal agriculture, or anything else. Go back to what it was that our friend Justice Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall, said in Gibbons and Ogden and ignore all of the extravagant misinterpretations of it uh, that took place afterwards, and it would be a far better place. The problem is it's much more difficult to undo a change when new institutions are embedded than it is to prevent it from happening um, uh, to begin with. And so I, I think, in effect, that's too big for something to take on except by increments the history on this has been very un- uninspired. Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist in the uh, Lopez case in 1995, he said, I'm cutting back on the gun laws. But he reaffirmed Wickard and Philbin, which says that the amount of wheat that you feed to your own cows is part of interstate commerce because of its influence on price, costs, and quantities, and so forth. Um, that's been reaffirmed. I don't see how... You can do anything, particularly since the local, local lower courts after Lopez have taken the narrowest possible reading of it, and essentially they are very comfortable with the status quo. And so I just don't see that happening. I'm a passionate defender of that position, passionate defender of strong property rights, um, passionate defender of separation of powers, passionate defenders of living Chevron deference. That's why I'm an outlier.
0: Adam, we are far afield of libel, but the field we're in is extraordinarily fascinating. If Richard's position on the Commerce Clause were adopted, which is no longer a hypothetical possibility, uh, what would the effect on the court's legitimacy be?
1: Oh, I think that to the extent the court disclaims power, it depends on the particular context in which it comes up. You know, I mean, if they uh, revise commerce the Commerce Clause to strike down the Affordable Care Act, that will be more important in the public mind as a political move than a jurisprudential one. But in general, to the extent the court disclaims power, that's probably good for the court's legitimacy. The other thing that we might see more of and that both Justice Brennan and just lately Judge Sutton of the Sixth Circuit have written about is that there may be a larger role for state constitutions to play.
0: And and I should say that Judge Judge Sutton was here at the center recently discussing his fascinating book, 50 Constitutions. Richard, how is it a mixed uh, bag?
2: Well, what happens is sometimes what the states do is they pick up gaps that the Supreme Court leaves. Some states are better on property rights, for example, than the national government. Uh, But these aggressive state courts trying to have statewide financing in California under Serrano and Priest led to an enormous destabilization of the whole system and uh, basically has made it extremely difficult to sustain public education in that state. The, The problem that you always have is you give up a weapon to anybody and you make it in general terms it can be for good or it can be for evil it's not saying that they're wrong in general for having decentralized norms second difficulty is state courts can balkanize interstate commerce that's where you're really worried about the way in which these things go by putting various kinds of barriers on people who come from outside the particular state this was a huge concern under the dormant commerce cause and if you expand state power uh, it could be a threat to the national market so you have to be very
0: careful. And Adam, the, the response, uh, both by Judge Sutton and by progressives like Dean Heather Gerkin, the leader of the new uh, progressive Federalists, is that it would just turn down the stakes and would make the consequences of Supreme Court decisions less significant. Say more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As, as Dean Gerkin says, there's something to be said for federalism all the way down, for returning power to lower levels of government, not only to states, but to localities. To let people see their democracy in action, not let them watch the kind of reality show we live in at the national level, but to have a a more authentic experience of of lived democracy.
2: But again, I'm going to answer just very shortly on the double-edged sword point. So the strongest objection that many people have raised to the California requirement that headquartered corporations in California have a minimum number of women is essentially what they're trying to do is to dictate through the state the way in which many national corporations have to do their business and are going to encroach necessarily on what the state of incorporation says about the same kind of business. So the external effects problem is extremely hard. not saying that I disagree with Adam. In fact, I tend to move in that particular direction. But ironically, if you want to have provincial state governments doing this, uh, their ability to discriminate against discrete and insular minorities, as in the segregated South, is very strong. And so you may need stronger federal protections, for example, of voting rights on the one hand or property rights on the other hand uh, when you're doing this. This is such a complicated system with multiple levers uh, that you just have to be very cautious about recommending major changes in one particular area unless you figure out how other portions of the institutions are going to be evaluated.
0: This has been such a wonderfully free uh, ranging discussion. I'm delighted that it's uh, ranged so broadly but we need to wrap it up and I'm just going to ask you, Adam, uh, is it important in this post-factual era with so much suspicion of institutions to have a firm distinction between fact and opinion? in the law? And uh, what is the current status of that distinction? And does it have to be firmed up or not?
1: Uh, it, to, to a large extent, whatever I think doesn't matter, because it's a lost cause. Uh, Richard's point of view is shared by lots of people that um, uh, journalism is is tainted by uh, illicit motives and political opinions, and so on. But in an ideal world, they are very separate realms. You know, there, uh, and we go back to the Taft point again. There are factual premises that one would hope everyone can, can agree on, and then people can draw different conclusions from those agreed upon facts. But unfortunately, it seems we live in an era where people get to choose their own facts, and then the conclusions flow from not a shared set of facts but from discrete silos of facts, and that's uh, very bad for our country.
2: Two words are so dangerous. Alternative facts is not an acceptable way of looking at things, and fake news is often a term of abuse. It's so hard to lower the temperature, but essentially the one thing that I learned as a lawyer is if you could narrow a dispute to a particular case instead of treating it as an exemplar of the way in which the world is organized, if you change the rhetoric on particular cases, so you're talking about what X said or Y said, and not talking about the relationship of whites to black men to women, old to younger, you'll do better. But I think the journalistic preference, often driven by the new entrance on the margin, has actually tended to make every small case into a big case, which creates all the difficulties. So Adam and I, I think, are in agreement of that. If you could lower the temperature, you might be able to improve the discourse.
0: Wonderful. Well, that is a fine motto for the We the People podcast, and uh, it's an excellent note on which to end. I hope to have both of you back uh, to continue to discuss the legitimacy of our institutions, and it is always a great honor to have Adam Liptak, and Richard Epstein. Adam, Richard, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Good to speak to you, Adam. Always a pleasure. You too, Richard.
0: Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotz and produced by Lana Ulrich, Madison Poulter, and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Sheldon Gilbert. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you listen. And recommend We the People to your friends and colleagues so they, too, can spread the constitutional light and educate themselves about the Constitution. And please, dear We the People friends, always remember, when you slumber and when you wake, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. We the people friends, this mission is now more urgently important than ever. You know, how under siege the legitimacy of our institutions are, it is urgently important to have civil dialogue so that all of us can educate ourselves from the best arguments on all sides of the constitutional debates at the center of our national lives so that we can make up our own minds as informed citizens. That is why you must support the National Constitution Center. With your time, treasure, and talent, you must become engaged with us, and if it's possible, please become a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.